So let's go back to Jude, this little one chapter letter that we've been in seemingly forever now. <laughs> um, so Jude has been talking about these false teachers. He initially, uh, he said at the beginning that he wanted to write to his readers um, to encourage them. He says, all, this is in verse three, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I think that's something that you and I need to be steeped very deeply in. The culture is changing. It is becoming an antichrist culture. And you know, whatever your politics is irrelevant at this point. What we need to look at is whether or not those who are in power are supporting religious liberty and our right to preach the gospel or not. And we have elected politicians across the board who are going to be causing problems for us over the next several years. I was just reading um, uh, Billy Graham's organization that is now run by Franklin Graham has a newsletter slash magazine they've produced for many years called Decision. And uh, it chronicled a, uh, I'm just trying to think of what it is, whether it is a, it is a, a brief or, or some sort of a, a legal document that has been signed by the uh, some uh, LGBTQ community head that is urging the government to rescind all um, authorization for schools who refuse to be in line with that LGBTQ agenda. So basically, um, schools are authorized um, they're, they're given, uh, that, uh, that imprimatur to teach. And, uh, this is seeking to rescind that, seeking to, um, th this is a, this is a, a broad and, and very, very dangerous situation because what it would mean is Christian colleges, seminaries, Christian schools, uh, that teach children would no longer have government authorization to do that. So um, assuming you're still allowed to teach your children as you see fit, uh, they would not have the proper accreditation. What does that mean? That means a school as vaunted as Baylor University, where I went, could have their accreditation yanked because they cannot go along with the LGBTQ agenda. This is what these people are seeking to do. So you and I need to, with all that we are, continue to uphold the scripture. And we need to continue to pass along uh, the faith that was once for all passed down to the saints. And you know, this is gonna have an impact on your kids. Uh, this means that if your kids don't go to an accredited school, they might not get a job that earns as much money, right? But which is, which is worse, to earn less money or to give authentication to something that the scripture is diametrically opposed to? We need to, we need to understand the times we're living in. And so this letter is very relevant to where we are right now right? He's opposing, you know, this is in the Roman Empire. And during this time, there would have not been official recognition of the Christian message, period. But in the United States of America, there has been uh, official recognition of the authenticity, I guess, of uh, religious expression among Christians for some time. But now, what you have is you have a political viewpoint that wants to wipe out the opposition altogether. 
that doesn't want to allow anybody else who thinks any differently than them to exist, essentially. The last bastion against this is the Supreme Court. And currently, we have a Congress that is in majority uh, opposed to religious liberty. We have a Senate that is evenly split, 50-50 now. But the president of the Senate is the vice president of the United States, which is Kamala Harris. And she is she was a senator and was the most left-leaning senator in the Senate and will now have the tie-breaking vote. So you and I need to be in prayer and we need to be ready to fight the good fight of faith. Don't give in. Don't cave in. Don't say, well, I don't know. And da, da, da. the word of God stands. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. My word will never pass away. God's word doesn't change. I'm not worried about being on the wrong side of history. I'm worried about being on the wrong side of eternity. I don't want to, you know, those who oppose God are going to lose in the end. And it doesn't matter how many votes you get. So we need to, we need to be aware of that, okay? So we're going to jump down to verses 17 through 19. The, uh, Jude writes, But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, In the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. So last week we talked about the first part of this, um, the apostles that he is speaking of, who foretold that in the last times there will be scoffers. Well, this is Second Peter, and uh, so he is authenticating Second Peter as an apostolic document in making this statement. And Second Peter, as I mentioned before, and Jude are very closely related. So in Second Peter, um, Peter writes, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this, this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on just as it was since the beginning of creation. So um, scoffers, mockers. Uh, this week, the scripture that I've been sending out to those that are in my uh, daily Bible group come from the Psalms. And I sent out Psalm 1 on Monday. Blessed are those who do not uh, walk in the way of sinners or stand in the way of uh, the immoral or sit in the seat of the scoffer or the scornful or the mocker? Are you sitting in the mocker's seat? And I see this all the time on Facebook. So you make a post and somebody decides that they're going to click that, uh, that uh, emoji that is the laughing emoji. Now, laughing is great, but when you post something that is political or scriptural or serious and somebody clicks the laughing emoji, what are they doing? They're mocking you, man. Now I'm gonna tell you what I'm doing right now. People punch that on something that's serious, I'm just unfriending them, I'm done. I'm not dealing with that anymore, I'm sorry. If you can't engage in something in an honest way, you want to make a statement, make a statement. But every time I see posts about certain politicians, all you find is people that want to mock. Mocking is not a fruit of the Spirit, right? And what we find with these religious teachers who would come into this church is they were, they were mocking the Word of God. They were mocking the Christian message. You have no answer. You have no evidence when all you can do is mock. What you're doing is you are appealing to your audience. You've got a group of people that agree with you, and you all, this is, this is high school theater, basically, right? This is, this is like taking high school to social media. 
right? You've got your little group of friends and you all point your finger at the kid that nobody accepts. <laughs> you have no evidence. What are you pointing your finger at this kid for? Because he's different than you? Because she doesn't agree with you? Because she's a different hairstyle than you? Because she's wearing the wrong hat? This is why you're mocking? You haven't proven anything. I read some of the testimony by uh, the congressman today that had nothing whatsoever to do with the case at hand, which relates to insurrection, right? And so there were all these mocking statements that had been made. Uh, if you want to make a point, then bring forth the evidence. Ad hominem arguments indicate that is against the man, right? Making fun of somebody. You make a case and somebody says, oh yeah, well, you're ugly. Oh yeah, well, you're old. Oh yeah, well, you're fat. Oh yeah, well, you're skinny. You didn't make any argument whatsoever. In fact, you're belittling me or whoever, and it shows how little you are. So let's sit down and let's talk and let's make a case and, you know, let's discuss evidence. But apparently that's not what these religious teachers were doing. They were just mocking, right? He says, uh, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in the last times, there will be scoffers. Well, we're in the last times and we have scoffers. What are they following rather than evidence or truth? Their own ungodly desires. And that's what we see a lot of, is people justifying their own desires. Now, one of the directions that it is possible for me to take uh, on Sunday morning is to look at creation and look at the creation account, which establishes very clearly that God created you in his image. Now, all of us have faults and frailties. Not all of those faults are our own fault, right? Some of those things we were born with and we have to deal with those frailties and those weaknesses where we're living in a fallen world. But, you're created in the image of God. And that's what I need to see restored. And that's what I need to pursue with all that I am. But what often happens and what we see happening in our society and our culture uh, all the time are people who deal with those faults by coming up with a false self, a false idea of who they are. Now, when was this imprinted? How was this imprinted? I don't know. How does a boy who is born start thinking that he's a girl? How does a girl who is born a girl start thinking that she is a boy? Well, we, we want to be sympathetic. We want to be empathetic. We want to be concerned. But if we simply feed into the delusion of someone who believes something that is clearly not reality, right? Yeah. So, you know, Monica, you, you still have little kids in your house. And I remember Craig sometime back when we were dealing with this, uh, when the Obergefell decision came through, the same-sex marriage decision, I was preaching on these issues. And uh, I can't remember what animal Jubilee wanted to be. It was some animal that she, that she thought she was, you know, that she wanted to be. I don't know if it was a dog or a cat or a dinosaur. I don't know, all right? But the point is, little kids, man, they have incredible imaginations. So what if your child says, I want to be a kitty? Or I want to be a, I want to be a dinosaur. Oh, God, then I guess we need to treat you like you're a dinosaur. I think you're a bad parent. You can play with them, but my goodness, are you serious? So there was just a, a case that went through in England um, as a result of some sort of a lawsuit that was brought by a 20-something who had been treated with um, uh, puberty-blocking hormones when she was 
younger than 16. I can't remember how old she was. But right now, we're dealing with folks in the LGBT community that want to apply puberty-blocking hormones before the child reaches puberty, if the child wants it, regardless of what the parents want. You have kids. You have a teenager. Do you think your teenager has any idea what the long-term results of her choices are yet? No. But we are profoundly stupid enough to think that a 14-year-old should be allowed to have an abortion or have puberty-blocking hormones applied. Are you kidding me right now? How disturbed, how distorted, how sick has our society become? Right? You make up your own mind about your own life, but leave our kids alone. Amen. Let them at least get through. So in England, they at least said, no, it's not, it's not ethical to um, apply puberty-blocking hormones to anyone who is younger than the age of 16. I would even say that at 16, you don't have it all together yet. I mean, you're making permanent decisions. Let your body get to the place and your mind get to the place where it is firm enough to make clear decisions. But see, they believe so strongly in their delusion that they have politicized it and they have gained, somehow they have gained power in the educational community, in government throughout the world, uh, among major corporations. What? The next two to four years are going to be interesting, right? But this is about following ungodly desires. Now, ungodly desire would sound like you are seeking to do something that you know is harmful or wicked or wrong. Ungodly just means that it is not in accordance with God's design. So a 14-year-old boy that thinks he's a girl can be pursuing ungodly desire. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to treat that 14-year-old the same as I would treat a 24-year-old. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Yeah. We need to have concern. We need to have compassion, even empathy. Mm. But empathy and, uh, and understanding doesn't mean agreement. I don't need to agree, right? So, you know, right here on this floor where you guys are seated right now learning the Bible, I had children sparring each other last night. They had headgear on and they had gloves on and they were fighting. And several of them cried. And so what do you do with that? Well, what I do is I try to help them to get up and fight more. I encourage them. I don't want them to give up. I do feel for them. I understand where they're coming from. But I'm old enough and have been through enough and have been teaching martial arts long enough that I realize that what they don't need is someone to coddle them and encourage them to just give up. Nor do they need, you know, the 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 horrible sensei from, you know, Karate Kid saying Show your enemy no mercy. Finish him. You know, whatever. What are you talking about right now? Okay. No. They need to learn to fight because they're going to have to fight on multiple levels in the world that they're living in. They really, really are. And sadly, bullies pick on weak kids. So if a kid shows weakness, those are the ones bullies go after. Now, I'm not training these kids to be bullies, but I am training them to learn how to fight and to have courage. And hopefully you'll understand that I'm not just referring to physical fighting alone, okay? So it says, these are the people who divide you. And we see that in politics right now, but we also see this in religious circles. It's interesting that the, uh, the lightning rod for everything seems to have been Trump. But if that person is capable of dividing you from your family and from your friends and from 
those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ, that's not a problem with that person. That's a problem with you. And that's a problem with them. That's somebody that doesn't even know you and doesn't care, right? Whichever side you're coming down on, whoever your favorite politician or celebrity or athlete is, they don't care about you. They don't care about you at all. They're not coming to your aid. They're not donating money to your cause. It doesn't matter whether you like or dislike or support or don't. You're just the mass. You and I are the ones that need to love each other and support each other. Don't let all of these political wins separate you from people that you've known and loved. And yet, that's what's happening. I mean, after the 2016 election, uh, I didn't vote for Donald Trump, and so I had people in my life that wouldn't talk to me, wouldn't have anything to do with me. Why? Because I made a different decision than you? Now in 2020, I did vote for Donald Trump. Well, he's made some bad decisions. Do I regret my vote? No, I voted for policy, not a politician, not a personality. So, yeah, I had somebody ask me earlier, I was looking at my phone and the news came through, surprise, that Congress had uh, voted to impeach Trump. It's a popular vote. They're all Democrats. Am I surprised? No. And this guy was like, well, are you a Trump supporter? I said, no, but I'm a supporter of liberty. I voted for him this time, but I'm not an apologist for him, right? I'm going to let the Lord work. Um, I think God is going to get his way regardless of what other people do or what they don't do, okay? Um, we're allowing godless people, whether they claim to be Christians or not. And by the way, people on both sides claim to be Christians, don't they? I mean, Joe Biden's a Catholic. Nancy Pelosi's a Catholic. Donald Trump is, I guess, Presbyterian. I don't know how much any of them go to church, right? But I'm going to tell you this, Trump, Pelosi, Biden, they're not representing Jesus. None of them are. You and I need to seek to unite around Christ, right? And can we agree to disagree? Can we see things, you know, from two different sides? It might teach us things, wouldn't it? Okay, I voted for Trump. You voted for Biden. Why did you vote for Biden? You have reasons. Why did I vote for Trump? I have reasons. What if we talk about that? Oh. And what if we see that Maybe neither one of us was entirely right. We were just trying to do the best we could. What would happen if we did that, right? Carnal people, fleshly people, natural people are going to take up their cause. They're going to compete. They're going to fight. That's, that's the law of the jungle, right? What's the law of the jungle? Survival of the fittest. We're going to fight over resources. And, you know, one side needs to be right. The other side needs to be wrong. It's a zero-sum game. That's what we're finding, and that's why nothing gets done in Washington. Because Democrats and Republicans won't get along any longer. It's a zero-sum game. It's like my way or the highway. That's what both sides say. What I'm hoping is, over the next two years, as the pendulum swings radically to the left, People like me, and hopefully like some of you, in the middle will go, whoa, 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 whoa. No. This is all, this is all wrong. No, this is all wrong. This is not about socialism or fascism. This is about seeking to promote health and prosperity and liberty, right? Isn't that what our country is about? life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness rather than, you know, the pursuit of my political agenda. So I'm using politics right now because we're really in the middle of that. But in my experience in church, uh, church can become political too. Ours doesn't. I'm the founding pastor of our church and I seek to give guidance and direction so we don't have bloody business meetings where people scream at each other. Believe it or not, there are churches where that happens. 
Churches have split over the color of the carpet. It's not a joke. Okay. The church decides that they, they want to refurbish their auditorium. And so, you know, they bring someone in and they have carpet swatches and paint swatches and whatever. And so they have a business meeting and they vote and they get mad at each other and the church splits. There are people who do not like that red wall. <laughs> we had a fella in here in 2015 that I rented space to and had a church and he was kind of cool when it came to design and that kind of, he's the one that came up with this idea for this, you know, these wood boards and all this. Other. I, I'm just not cool like that. I'm sorry. So he brought some swatches up and I just chose the swatches and we just painted them. I don't care what color that is. It can be green. It can be blue. Just not that, that vomit color of green that they have in hospitals. Not going to do that. All right. It's irrelevant to me. But the point is I just made a decision and we did it and nobody's complained about it. Now, when I've talked about changing the paint color on the wall, people have chimed in. Listen, I'm willing to listen to anybody. But the reason why our church doesn't have a bunch of splits and fights and whatever is because there's somebody in charge, right? And somebody who you trust who's in charge. But what happens is people divide over a variety of different things. And that's what we need to avoid. We need to major on what is genuinely important, not on what's unimportant. So I'd like to rip this carpet up and go to the bare floor. I don't know that we can afford it. So I may just rip this carpet up and go with another color of carpet that's darker and lower nap so that we can just kind of not have to deal with all these stains and whatnot. Um, but nonetheless, the point is people have opinions. I have said opinions are like noses. Everybody has one. Some are big, some are small, some are crooked, some are straight, but everybody has an opinion. And when we all stick our noses in everybody else's business and think that everybody needs to look like us and think like us, that's the problem. I'm always willing to listen. I'm a strong personality. I have strong opinions. I make determinations. I make decisions but I'm always willing to listen to people. Now that doesn't mean I'm like super spiritual or something, but I think carnal ministry is someone who is so frail in their ego. Their ego may be big, but it's like a balloon. You ever notice the, the bigger the balloon becomes, the more you blow it up, the weaker it is? You notice that? If you blow a balloon up and it's just small, you can't pop that thing to save your life. Have you ever taken a balloon and you didn't blow all the way up and tried to stomp on it? The air goes here, here, here. You can't pop the dang thing. It will not pop. But buddy, you blow that balloon up big, and I mean, it will pop in a heartbeat just like that. Easy to pop. That's gin ginormous egos are just like that. Inflated egos. Yeah, there's politicians like that, aren't there? They're just ready to pop, all right? So um, politics is the religion of many, even of those who would claim Christianity. Hopefully our church is not preaching politics, but the gospel. There's a divide and conquer strategy being employed by Democrats and Republicans, by Democrats over race, gender, sexual orientation, and there's division and rancor among conservatives over policies such as immigration and the personality of Trump. Christians divide over too many peripheral issues, majoring on minors, as I said earlier. It is imperative that we stand united behind Christ and the Bible's clear teaching about morality. Various doctrinal stances may be debated, and many times we should simply agree to disagree. Predestination, dispensationalism, uh, a variety of different doctrinal positions that have been held by uh, godly people over the years. This is not a unity at all costs mandate, however. As I previously made the case, there are essential theological beliefs that must be held without compromise. What are those? The deity of Christ. That means Jesus is God. Salvation by grace through faith. 
By grace are you saved through faith, and then out of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, as anyone should boast. The Bible as God's inspired message, a Trinitarian understanding of God. God is Father, Son, and Spirit, co-equal, co-existent, co-eternal persons in the same God. Monotheism, one God. The historical bodily resurrection of Jesus. Jesus didn't die and was spiritually resurrected, but his body's still moldering in the grave somewhere. No, Jesus was bodily resurrected. Um, the atonement, Jesus died on the cross to put away our sins, to make us one with God. Uh, the resurrection and judgment of all people, you will be resurrected, you are going to die, it is appointed for everyone who wants to die, and then comes judgment. You will be bodily resurrected and you will stand before God in judgment. That's a reality and that's something that we should hold to and not compromise. Um, eternal life for those who are in Christ, okay? Uh, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He offers eternal life. To as many as received him, to them he became, um, uh, to as many as received them, to them uh, he gave the right to be sons of God, even to those who called on his name. Um, eternal destruction for those who reject Christ, right? So those are essentials that we should all hold to regardless. Now let's get to this point that I really kind of, uh, teased when I sent out the, um, the uh, information about tonight's message. He says, these pursue their own desires, right? Follow their own ungodly desires. They divide you, they follow natural instincts, and they do not have the Spirit. So apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit within, there is no genuine Christianity. Let me say that again. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian, period. No matter what you say, no matter what you think. That's the acid test of Christianity. When I was a kid, I don't know, I was probably about Aiden's age, when uh, I got a chemistry set for Christmas. Super cool. So it was in this metal case and you opened it up and there were all these test tubes and chemicals. I don't even know if they do this today. I mean, I had a Bunsen burner. I could light stuff on fire, man. I mean, it was awesome. And it had uh, this paper called litmus paper, right? It was like kind of like this, this pale sort of green color, if I remember, greenish yellow, right? So if you dip that litmus paper in a solution that had acid in it, it would turn red. See, the litmus test for being a Christian is not what you say, but it's what you have. When that litmus paper is dipped into your heart, it should come out red indicating that you have had the blood of Christ applied to you, that you have the Spirit of God living in you. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, the Apostle Paul writes, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Hear that again. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That's the acid test. So carnal ministry is characteristic of our time, even among those who preach and teach about the Holy Spirit. I mean, I have a Bible from a particular ministry that is known for being all about the Holy Spirit. But I have been to the, that ministry and uh, observed how they operate, and I do not think that they are uh, Holy Spirit anointed and endowed. They seem to be very carnal. Too many ministers are merely charismatic personalities pursuing and promoting their own passion. People follow people, right? They follow celebrities. There are celebrity pastors. There are celebrity worship leaders. So, I mean, there are some good bands out there. I'm not, I'm, you know, don't get me wrong. But I wonder what happens to the, the personality of the individuals who are in those bands. Because there are very, very popular worship bands out there from very, very popular churches with celebrity pastors. And these worship bands 
I mean, you know, I watch some of this stuff on YouTube. I mean, they have packed auditoriums. Well, right now you see what's going on uh, in uh, a, uh, a ministry called Hillsong. A number of the pastors in Hillsong have resigned. One of those pastors has admitted to uh, marital infidelity. There are a number of worship leaders who have come out in recent uh, years who have said, no, now they're atheists. Well, what does that tell me about that person and who they, they, they were previously and why they were doing what they were doing? I had somebody tell me one time, at this point in time, this young man was trying to deal with, you know, what he wanted to do with his life. You know, he was, I don't know, 20s or 30s. And he said, well, I'd be the pastor of a church if it was a big church. Oh, really? Because why? You'd be popular. You'd make a big salary. That's the wrong reason. There's, uh, there's some deeply perverse ideas about Christian music and Christian ministry when it becomes entwined with business, when it becomes entwined with celebrity. That's not what Jesus called us to do. That's not what Jesus called us to be. And I pray that whatever happens to this church, that I will remain the person that I am and not turn into some sort of a, you know, self-seeking individual, right? But that's carnal ministry. Um, so this has been the case throughout the history of the church, but it's evident today among celebrity pastors and worship leaders, inevitably they fail. And this invariably is due to three things. Invariably, ministries that fail, not necessarily in this order. They fail because of abuse of power or authority. They fail because of greed. Or they fail because of sexual immorality. And I could name person after person after person that has failed uh, because of these particular issues. Um, listen to what Galatians chapter 5 says the signs of carnality are. When you follow the desires of your flesh, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at the ministry that you support, that you're involved in. Look at the, the author that you read, the, the, the teacher that you listen to, whose podcast you listen to. Is their ministry, is their teaching um, showing evidence of the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I'm not saying, is this person perfect? I'm asking you, what characterizes their ministry? And above all, who do they talk about? Who do they focus on? Jesus or themselves? Do they spend part of the time talking about Jesus and the rest of the time talking about how you need to donate money to their ministry? Honestly, I just got exhausted in the midst of the election campaign, getting wave after wave of emails from all of these different sources, just saying, hey, this is happening, money. Hey, you need to, you know, we need to change this, money. All they want is money, all right? So I, I don't know about the opposition, and I'm sure that this is the case on the Democrat side as well, but uh, Trump raised $120 million in the wake of the election, after the election, floating this idea 
that it was stolen. Now, you know, there are, uh, there's all sorts of evidence that there were some irregularities and so forth. But the point is, invariably, it's just about money. Ask yourself the question, is this about Jesus or is this about money? Is this about the cause they're talking about or is this just about trying to get me to give them more money? You don't hear me asking you for money very often, do you? I taught on giving several weeks ago, but I had planned on doing that uh, during Christmas because that's what we do during Christmas. I don't teach on money all the time. Maybe I would be wiser or at least worldly wiser. I don't. You would be wise to follow God's plan of giving. You would be wise to learn to tithe. But I don't think by continuing to hammer that and hammer that and hammer that, that that's going to serve any purpose other than convincing you and demonstrating that the only reason I do this is for money. And that's not why I do this. Um, is the ministry focused on Christ or the minister? Listen to uh, this passage of scripture from Philippians 2. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. In Greek, it means he emptied himself. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above other, all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He who is first will be last, and he who is last will be first. Learn to be humble. Seek the last seat. Offer the last piece of pie, the last piece of pizza to somebody else. Don't demand shotgun. Talking to teenagers largely here, right? I, I took teenagers all over the place. I've taken teenagers all over the country. And I'm telling you what, man, they're all about demanding shotgun. Shotgun, shotgun, no, I got shotgun. No, what you wanna do is you wanna offer that to other people right? We need to be humble people. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he will raise you up. When you're trying to raise yourself up, you know what's going to happen? God's going to cut you down. The spirit gives life. The flesh doesn't profit at all. So carnal ministry is utterly unproductive. And then uh, last week, I think we looked at this passage of scripture where the Apostle Paul wrote to his protege Timothy about things that would happen in the last days, and he concluded that those in the last days would have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. These are people that are religious, but don't have the Holy Spirit, okay? Uh, Jude verses 20 through 23. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now I'm going to stick to my notes closely here in the hopes that I might be able to finish Jude this evening. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. So some people are into bodybuilding, right? This is the time of year, bodybuilding. I started German volume training last week. It's all about bodybuilding, losing some fat, gaining some muscle. But believers must constantly be involved in faith building. Amen? You need to focus your energy and your attention on building your faith. So not only do we want to avoid false teaching and heretical teachers, it's not just about staying away from the bad. It's about strengthening what is good. It's about strengthening our faith. So I told you that 2 Peter and Jude were closely aligned with one another. Remember what 2 Peter said in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8. 
For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness. That's um, perseverance would be another way of saying that. And steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly, brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Carnal people are unfruitful and ineffective. Those who are anointed, that is, they have the Holy Spirit, are productive and powerful. When you pray for somebody and you pray in the Spirit, you can anticipate that something will happen. So earlier tonight, I asked you to pray for a couple of different people. I asked you to pray for Annette. I didn't mention her name, but the young lady that's in the hospital, her name is Andrea. I am expecting God to do great things in their life. I'm Listen, if you ask me to pray for you, I'm not gonna go, oh man, what's wrong? Oh, I am so sorry. I might say that. But I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to trust that God's going to do something good in your life. It's like I pray for somebody up here at the front, but if all they want to do is have a pity party, I'm not coming to your pity party. If all you want is pity, then you don't want an answer to your prayer. You just want pity. I want you to have an answer to your prayer. I want your life situation to change. And that requires us to have faith in the one who can change our life situations. So, do you have some faith goals for this year? I challenged you guys to set some goals, right? Some intellectual or mental goals, some physical goals, some spiritual goals, right? Challenge you to some social goals, four goals. I should challenge you to set some financial goals. That would be another good goal. Are you looking, are you seeking, are you trying to grow in faith? You need to apply some effort. Do you read the Bible daily? Do you pray consistently? He says, and praying in the Holy Spirit. This means I don't just speak to the sky. There's an old song from the early 70s. Speak to the sky whenever things go wrong. Okay, you're all too young. Never mind. And you won't hear me sing anyway. <laughs> This means when I pray, I don't just talk to the air. I have a sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit and pray through him to the Father in the name of Jesus. You know that's how you do it, right? You pray to the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. That doesn't mean it's wrong to pray to Jesus or even the Holy Spirit. But if you want to know the right way to pray, you pray to the Father in or through the presence of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus, right? Praying in the Holy Spirit. Um, keep yourselves in the love of God, he says. Constantly remind yourself that God does indeed love you no matter what circumstances might seem to indicate. Maybe you don't need that, but I need that. I've got to constantly remind myself that God loves me. So when I speak to God as Father, then my natural inclination is to think of my earthly father who abandoned me. He wasn't there for me. No, I don't hold anything against him anymore. He died in 2008. I officiated his funeral, actually. And he finally, at the end of his life, uh, confessed Christ, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. But... He was never there for me. So there's a natural inclination on my part, in the natural, to think of God as not being there, to think of God as just overlooking me, having abandoned me. I have to constantly remind myself to remain in the love of God. Listen to this prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that, that is at work within us, right? So I want to be filled with the Spirit. I want to be filled with the love of God. I've got to constantly remind myself to keep myself in the love of God. Um, one, of my, uh, one of my favorite old hymns is titled, The Love of God. And I won't sing it or you'll all leave but I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the words to it, right? The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The wandering child is reconciled by God's beloved son, the aching soul again made whole and priceless pardon won. And then the refrain, the verse, O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Verse 2, when ancient time shall pass away and human thrones and kingdoms fall, when those who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love so sure shall still endure, all measureless and strong. Grace will resound the whole earth round, the saints and angels song. And then the, the refrain again, the love of God, how rich, how pure. Now I want you to listen to this last verse. And I'm going to tell you where the last verse came from. The first two stanzas are the work of Frederick M. Lehman. The third, by Lehman's con, uh, account, he heard at a camp meeting sermon. This, the, the lines of this last verse that I'm going to read to you here in just a second were found written by a demented man on the wall of his narrow room in the asylum where he died, quote, unquote. Wow. These were written on the walls of a mental asylum. You ready? Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and everyone a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Amen? Remain in the love of God. What I receive, though, I'm obligated to give. So I receive the love of God, and I give that love to other people. Right? Jesus said, love one another even as I have loved you. He called it a new command. Why did he call that a new command? Because now we have the example of Christ as to how we should love. Once you receive that love of God, you offer that to other people. God loves you now, and you're not perfect. And you may have been his enemy at times, but he loves you as you are, just as you are. Guess what? Love the people on the other side of the political aisle that way. Love people from other religious groups that way. Love people who think differently than you that way. Love your enemies that way. That's what Jesus said that we're supposed to do. Waiting on the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So when I say I'm saved, I make a statement of faith. I'm saved from the corruption of this world, but I'm making a statement of faith that I will be saved from the wrath of God and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. So like love, I don't just receive mercy, but I pass it along to everyone. Another way of understanding this is to realize I must forgive as I've been forgiven. Have you been hurt? Somebody hurt you? Hard to forgive them? Consider how much your sin hurts God and how he's forgiven you. And on that basis, choose to forgive that person. 
Forgive that family member. Forgive that former friend, that erstwhile friend, okay? And he says, have mercy on the doubter. Understand that there are those who doubt honestly and that there are those that use questioning and doubt as an excuse to push God away. The latter are in rebellion. Always be ready to give a reason for the hope you have, but don't throw your pearls to pigs. Tell people why you believe, but if they spit in your face, wipe it off and move on. You don't have to convince them in order to be proven right. If you're right with God, you're right. I don't have to convince anybody else that I'm right. Why am I seeking to convince someone else? Because I want them to be right with God. I don't look at people in the flesh anymore. I look at them differently. I look at them as someone who needs the love of God that I have received, right? And we want to help people that are caught up in sin, but we've got to be wary, um, and that means cautious, that we're not pulled into the same sin. We need to have empathy for someone who, but that doesn't equate to acceptance of their sin. I can care about you. God, I can have empathy for you. But if you're involved in doing something that's wrong and destructive, that doesn't mean I'm going to agree with you. I can love you without agreeing with you. I can love you without even trusting you. That's what we don't understand. That's what our culture doesn't understand. Everybody just needs to think the same way and march to the same beat. Dude, what kind of world is that? Let's love each other and admire each other and you know, be happy that we're different. That's a good thing. I don't want to be like everybody else. I certainly don't want everybody else to be like me. Gosh, if everybody was like me, I would be annoyed. I don't know about you, right? Jesus said, uh, don't give dogs what is holy and don't throw your pearls to pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So if somebody's disrespectful, don't hate on them. Just walk away, right? Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet and leave that house or town. Finally, Here's the benediction, and I've, I've gone way over tonight, but I'm really wanting to finish Jude tonight rather than having a hangover next week. Um, Jude closes with this doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, wow, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. He wants to be there for us, to keep us from stumbling. Stumbling is going to happen. You're going to fall short. You're going to fail. But if Christ is holding your hand, he's going to keep you from doing a face plant, right? Um, the scripture says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, though he fall, he will not be hurled headlong, for it is the Lord that upholdeth his hand. Sorry, I memorized it in King James. Okay. Though he fall, there's a recognition. There will be times you will fall. There will be times you will stumble. But you don't give up. You drop to your knees. You skin your knee. But you allow the Lord to continue to hold your hand and lift you up. He will keep you. In order to keep from falling and keep from stumbling, we need to continue to walk the narrow path. We need to stop walking off to the right and walking off to the left and trying to make this up as, uh, as we go along, okay? So the benediction there concludes by uh, giving us a very high Christology. It says, uh, to the only God, our Savior, Jesus, uh, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all times and forever. Jesus is God. He's one with God the Father. He's not a son of God like you and I are sons and daughters of God. He has a unique relationship with God. Um, I'm going to read to conclude. I'm going to read this, uh, this little passage. Well, I think I copied it somewhere here. From the Nicene Creed. Ah, here it is. I knew I'd find it. This is the second section of the, the, the Nicene Creed, which uh, the church formulated in 325 AD. 
And I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by, by whom all things were made. Amen? That's the Jesus we worship. That's the one that we serve. And that's why we do what we do. All right? Okay, well, I appreciate you guys coming tonight. And uh, to be quite honest, I don't know what we're going to study next week, but I'll have something for you. I learned that, that creed when I was in Catholic Church. When you were what? In Catholic Church. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Catholic Church quotes that all the time. Yeah, that's what we pray. In fact, we, we, we probably ought to do it. So there's the Apostles' Creed, which is the earliest one. And then the Nicene Creed uh, was formulated because uh, there were some heretics in the church that were saying that Jesus was just another man, essentially. So, yep, good stuff.